Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you have a Bible, would you take it this morning and turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, we come this morning to the the final scene, scene 4 of this unfolding drama that is the story of Jonah. And it got me to thinking this week, I wonder for you, what makes for good, a good storyline? What sort of plot lines, what sort of uh, movie storylines do you enjoy most? Do you enjoy cliffhangers and suspense? Perhaps huge twists and turns that are surprising and unexpected? Or are you more the type that you enjoy little drama? You like nice resolutions to stories and everything's sort of packaged up nice and neat by the end and the hero rides off into the sunset. I wonder what you enjoy, enjoy most. The, the, the story of Jonah is an amazing story. The book of Jonah, it has an incredible storyline. The ESV Study Bible comments, quote, the book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. While the storyline is so simple that children follow it readily, the story is marked by as high a degree of literary sophistication as any book in the Hebrew Bible. This story, it is a literary masterpiece. It is is so wonderfully simple. Children love it. It holds their attention, but it is written with a level of literary sophistication like no other. The ESV Study Bible goes on to say, quote, The author employs structure, humor, hyperbole, irony, and literary figures like mirrorism to communicate his message with great rhetorical power. It is wonderfully simple, and yet it is amazingly complex. And yet, as we've seen over the last several weeks, church, it is also quite shocking. In fact, it is disturbingly shocking. Jonah, this prophet, is sent by God to go and to preach to the pagan, wicked Ninevites this message of impending doom. Chapter 3, verse 4, his message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh is to be destroyed. But instead, this prophet, he has done an about-face to flee from the presence of the Lord. He is on the run from God. And then on his way by boat to Tarshish, he soon finds himself thrown overboard, sinking to the bottom of the sea. And yet God, in his goodness and mercy toward this prophet, he appoints a great fish 
to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah's life is miraculously spared. He is supernaturally saved and delivered by God living three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And then by the command of God, this fish spits him out again on dry land. And he then now, in compliance with the sovereign will of God, makes his way into Nineveh where he preaches this message of judgment. And immediately, we are surprised by this never-before-seen revival in Nineveh. The greatest revival, the greatest outpouring of saving mercy ever seen in history. An entire city is saved. And stunningly, most stunningly, the Ninevites repent, they turn from their sin, and God in turn relents. He doesn't do what he has said he would do. And so it has been a roller coaster ride, you could say. One surprise after another. One unexpected twist and turn after another. And just when you think you have this story figured out, it takes another turn. And that's what we find certainly is the case here in chapter 4. Because as this literary masterpiece now comes to an end, we find here perhaps the most shocking ending you could imagine. It it really is a surprising, unexpected ending. In fact, what we discover here is that there really is no resolution to this story. This may be the greatest cliffhanger in the Bible, where you would expect this prophet of God, after being rescued from certain death by the mercy of God in chapter 2, after his disobedience and then witnessing an entire city saved from the judgment of God in chapter 3, to now be rejoicing here in chapter 4, and yet we find him furious. How's that for a twist? He is angry with God because God has shown them mercy. It is shocking. And then the story ends, notice in chapter 4, verse 11, with a question. With a question. And we never find out what happens to Jonah. Are you curious what happens to Jonah? Does his heart ever change? It is, it is surprising. Why would the author leave us hanging like this? How could you not tell us what happens to the main character of the story? And beloved, the reason is because Jonah has never been the main character of this story. This story is not about Jonah. This story is not about a fish. This story is about God. And here again this morning, we get to witness the surprising mercy and compassion of God on full display for undeserving sinners. Let's see it together. Jonah chapter 4. If you have your place there, would you mind standing with me out of honor for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth by, for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. After Jonah exited stage right back in chapter 3, verse 4, the spotlight, notice, now shifts back again onto this prophet. Jonah comes back into the scene. He now suddenly reappears again here at the beginning of chapter 4. And it is a most unexpected twist. This is shocking. This is surprising. Because we find here Jonah after witnessing God's compassion toward the Ninevites furious. He is angry. He is outraged. Chapter 4, verse 1, notice, but it, it being a reference back to really all of chapter 3, but chapter 3, verse 10, where God sees what the Ninevites do in turning from their evil ways, and they repent of their sin, and so God relents of the disaster he would said to do to, to them, but it, verse 1, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Is Reaction is surprising. It is confusing. Why? How is this possible? Why would Jonah be angry with God for showing mercy to the Ninevites? Well, before we answer that question, notice just the structure here of chapter 4. Notice how the author has organized this chapter because the structure here actually helps you to understand his point. Remember I told you the structure of the entire book. Chapter 1, it's Jonah and the Gentiles, where we see these 
pagan sailors and Jonah himself are delivered and saved. And then in chapter 2, we see it's Jonah alone with his God, where he offers from the belly of this fish a prayer of thanksgiving to God for rescuing him. And then in chapter 3, it's the same pattern as chapter 1. It's Jonah and the Gentiles, where these Ninevites repent after he preaches in the city. And then in chapter 4, following again the pattern of chapter 2, it's just Jonah alone with God. But notice, is there a structure here in chapter 4? Well, look there. There's really two halves, two parts here to chapter 4. Both follow the same pattern. Part 1, notice, is verses 1 to 4, where we see first the narrator will speak in verse 1, and then Jonah will speak in verses 2 and 3, and then God will speak in verse 4. And then part two, notice, is verses 5 to 11 that follows the exact same pattern, the exact same structure. The narrator speaks in verses 5 to 8, and then in verses 8 and 9, Jonah will speak again for the very last time, and then finally, God will speak in verses 9 to 11. That's the pattern. Narrator, Jonah, God. Narrator, Jonah, God. Those are the two halves here in this final scene, and in each part with God having the final word. But what is perhaps most surprising here is that both sections end with God questioning Jonah. Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, answer me. Then in verse 9, Part two, you do well to be angry for the plant? Or verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? And that's how the book ends. It ends with God questioning Jonah, and we never hear Jonah's answer. How's that for an ending? And beloved, that is the point. We are never meant to hear Jonah's answer because his answer to God's question ultimately doesn't matter. No, what matters, friend, is your answer. How you will respond. One commentator writes, we're not told how Jonah responds because at this point, it isn't his response that matters, it's yours. When you see the selfish, petty, hard-hearted response of Jonah, the question is, how will you respond? That's the question. And remember, I told you, this book, it's, it's like a mirror that you are to hold up and you are to see your own reflection. And as you look into this mirror, you are to ask yourself the question, Whose reflection do I see? Do I see God's heart for the lost, God's heart for the nations, or do I see the self-righteous heart of Jonah? Whose reflection do you see? So let's look at this final scene under two headings. Two headings. Number one, the complaint of God's prophet, verses 1 to 4. And second, the compassion of God's heart. Verses 5 
to 11. First, notice with me the complaint of God's prophet in verses 1 to 4. Look there, verse 1. Notice, notice verse 1 is closely tied to all that has happened in chapter 3. That's what it refers to there in verse 1. But the scene has now changed. The spotlight is now back on Jonah. And we find Jonah's response, his reaction to what happened in chapter 3. This revival that breaks out in Nineveh. And let's just say that his response isn't a good one. No, after witnessing this compassion and mercy of God, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Perhaps the most unexpected twist in this book. Sinclair Ferguson comments, the final chapter of Jonah is perhaps the most puzzling and mysterious of all. Why is Jonah so angry? In fact, the shocking nature of his response here is seen in a play on words that the author uses. Look there in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That word there, displeased, it's, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah. It's, it's the same word in Hebrew for evil. And it's contrasted with, notice in chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, their ra'ah way, God relented. And so now, verse 1, Jonah says, it's evil. It displeased him exceedingly. In other words, after Jonah sees God's mercy on the Ninevites, he says, God, what you have done is evil. What you have done is wrong. He is, he is offended. One commentator says, Jonah, Jonah considered it gravely wrong for the Lord to show such mercy and grace to such a wicked people. God, what you have done is evil, and he hates it. He's angry. If you remember Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a lost sheep who wanders away from the 99. You remember the story? And the shepherd goes to find this one missing sheep. And when he finds it, he comes home, Jesus says, rejoicing. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is happy. And then in the very next verse, he tells the story of a lost coin where this woman finds this one lost coin, this missing coin, and she rejoices. And Jesus says in verse 10, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the angels are happy. God is happy. The only person in this story who isn't happy is Jonah. So notice God's heart and Jonah's heart are diametrically opposed in their disposition toward these 
repentant Ninevites. Now, how is that possible? Why is he so angry? And in verse 2, for the very first time in this book, we discover the reason why. And we learn it from overhearing now Jonah pray. And so here we learn also for the very first time why he fled to Tarshish back in chapter 1. The narrator, he's been holding us in suspense until now. Until this moment, right here. Now, we are at a slight disadvantage. Because... I gave you the spoiler back in week one. I told you why. And plus, many of you are very familiar with this story, which also puts you at a very disadvantage, I think, right here. But the original readers don't know why yet. They've been held in suspense since chapter one until this moment right here. Why is he so angry? Verse two. Notice his prayer. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why, here's the reason, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew it, God. And merciful. I knew you'd be merciful. And slow to anger. I knew it. Abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So there you have it. I knew it, Lord. That's why I ran. That's why I fled to Tarshish, because I knew what you were like. Jonah fled because he feared that if he preached to them, and they repented, then God would have mercy on them because that's the kind of God he is. So Jonah's heart here is now for the very first time exposed. And this sheds light now on his running in chapter 1, on his hypocritical prayer in chapter 2, on his disposition and going to Nineveh in chapter 3, and he angrily says in the face of God, I knew it. I knew it. He knew God would be merciful to his enemies, these Ninevites, because he knew the character of God. What does Jonah know about God? Well, look there again, verse 2. Just ponder these attributes here with me for a moment. He knew that God is gracious and merciful. He knew that he was slow to anger. He knew that he abounds in steadfast love. He knew that he relents from judgment. Jonah has right theology. In fact, notice in his prayer here, he he recites some of the most precious truths about the character of God. The the attributes of God. In fact, this isn't the first time these characteristics of God are mentioned in the Bible. This list, if you you remember, 
When God, the Lord, reveals himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, you remember he descends in the cloud and he, he proclaims his name to Moses in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Here's what we read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's his name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jonah knew this about God. This is what God is like. This is who God is. I knew it. But what you may not know, or what you may not remember, and it seems Jonah doesn't remember, is the context of Exodus 34. Because these very same characteristics mentioned here of God that he proclaims are what Israel had experienced when they sinned. In Exodus 32, just two chapters before this, one of the darkest moments in Israel's history they had built a golden calf and they had bowed down to worship it. You remember this? They had sinned. And in that context, Moses, if you remember, he intercedes for the people. And God relents of his judgment. They had broken his covenant, and yet God was merciful and gracious and forgave them. But now... When that same mercy is shown to Israel's enemies, he can't handle it. Now Jonah thinks the character of God is too merciful. He's too excessive in his mercy. That, that his divine mercy has eclipsed his divine justice and he is critical of God, he is critical of the attributes of God, forgetting all the while that he himself had benefited from these very same attributes in chapter 2. When God had been so merciful to him, I knew it. So he's angry. Angry because God, he's angry because he can't reconcile God's love and mercy to Israel and his love and mercy to the wicked enemies of Israel, the pagan nations of the world, these Ninevites. And he is afraid that the disposition of God's heart toward Israel would be the disposition of his heart toward Jonah's enemies as well. In fact, we see how angry he is. Look there, verse 3. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He is so angry with God that he gives God an ultimatum. <laughs> if you're going to spare them, take me. It's them or me, God. What? What a pathetic little man. Douglas Stewart comments, God had mercifully rescued Jonah from drowning via the fish. But now he asks God himself to end his life. In essence, Jonah is saying, over my dead body. 
And then, verse 4, now God responds. The word of the Lord came to Jonah back in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and now it comes here yet again. But this time, this time it comes in the form of a question. Look at verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, is this right? Is it right for you to be angry? Friends, behold the patience of God. <laughs> He's so unbelievably patient with this arrogant, stubborn, hard-hearted prophet. And he has been so patient with you and me. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is so patient. He doesn't strike him dead, although he probably should have and maybe would have tempted to be in this moment. He doesn't even rebuke him. He simply asks him a question. Jonah, is this right? Are you upset that I would be merciful toward these people? Is it right that I have shown you mercy but not them? But there's no response here from Jonah. Instead, notice now verse 5. Jonah now leaves the city. And we come here to the end of part one. The narrator has spoken. Jonah has spoken. God has now spoken. And we've seen this complaint of God's prophet. Now second, point number two, notice the compassion of God's heart in verses 5 to 11. Look there, verse 5. Instead of responding to God's question in verse 4, Jonah now turns and leaves the city of Nineveh. And in verse 5, he makes his way outside the city. Notice it says east of the city. If you were to look at a map, you would see Jonah would have arrived on the west side of Nineveh. And so after making his way through this city, three days journey, according to chapter 3, he now exits to the east of this city. But there could also be here a Theological reason for mentioning east of the city? The author could be drawing attention here to Jonah's disobedience because moving eastward in the Old Testament symbolized disobedience. Adam and Eve were banished east of Eden. Cain settles east of Eden. Lot separates from Abraham and goes east toward Sodom and Gomorrah. This could be a reference here to Jonah's disobedience. But in any case, Jonah heads east of the city. And look there at verse 5. He goes outside the city and he makes a booth or a tent to sit under. Jonah went outside the city, verse 5, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. And it would appear now that Jonah still holds out some hope that God will pour out his wrath and judgment on Nineveh. 
He's still hoping God will destroy the city because notice in verse 5, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So it seems as though he still holds out some hope. This city is going to be destroyed. And so he is waiting. He is watching. Most likely for 40 days. That's how long God gave them, right? You can imagine. Day 38. Day 39. Day 40. Day 41. So verse 5 He builds a shelter for some shade. He's exposed to the elements now because he's outside the city. And he waits to see, perhaps God will change his mind. And justice will trump mercy, he hopes. He wants a rerun of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. But now beginning here in verse 6, look there, God still patiently pursues him. And it comes in the form of an object lesson from nature in verses 6 to 8, followed by two more questions in verses 9 to 11. So the Lord, he uses this opportunity here now to instruct Jonah about his compassionate heart. This time, not not by means of a fish, no, this time by means of a plant and a worm and a wind. Verse 6, look there. Since Jonah won't respond to God's question, God now uses this illustration to teach him about divine mercy. Now the Lord God appointed a plant And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Verse 6, this is now the third time in this book that God has appointed something in nature to try and get his attention. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord, Lord had appointed or he had hurled a storm while he's at sea. Chapter 1 and verse 10, the Lord appointed a great fish. To swallow him up. And now, verse 6, he appoints a plant. And then we'll see, notice, down in verse 7, he's also going to appoint a worm. And in verse 8, he's going to appoint a scorching east wind. So notice, beloved, how everything in nature, from large storms, great fish, Small worms and plants, everything bends to the sovereign will of God. He is absolutely sovereign here. So verse 6, God appoints this plant. Some translations say a, a gourd or a vine. The reference here, in all likelihood, is a reference to the castor oil plant. Scholars say, some joke, I don't know, you probably have to be over the age of 50 or 60 to get it, but Jonah needed a good dose of castor oil, apparently. I don't know what that means. Maybe you older folks get it. Castor oil plants, which can grow in this part of the world up to 8 to 10 feet tall. 
And apparently it grew up in one day. Because notice in verse 10, it was there in a night and gone in a night. Now, how is that possible? This isn't the first time in this book that we have experienced and witnessed a miracle, is it? Again, Douglas Stewart writes, Attempts to explain the mechanics of miracles are usually doomed to fail. So he appoints a plant. Now, why a plant? Beloved, this is an act of God's kindness and mercy to Jonah. Verse 6, notice that it might be a shade over his head to save him. Save him from his discomfort. This is an expression of God's mercy. Apparently the booth he constructed wasn't enough to protect him from the heat of the sun. So this is a kindness from the Lord that Jonah doesn't deserve. But it's also to teach him a lesson. This plant is meant to teach him a lesson. In fact, you see this here again in this play on words. Look at verse 6. The plant is given to save him from his discomfort. It's the very same word as disaster back in chapter 3, verse 10. So... While the Ninevites were rescued from eternal disaster, Jonah is rescued here from temporary discomfort. And yet notice his response in verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Do you see the irony here with verse 1? Verse 1, when God mercifully delivers Nineveh, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. But verse 6, when God mercifully delivers him from the heat of the sun, he is exceedingly glad. In other words, he is distressed when sinners are protected from the heat of God's wrath, but he is thrilled when he receives protection from the heat of the sun. How petty is this guy? Stunning. And so, Jonah is now happy. Which, by the way, is the first time we see him happy in this book. In the comfort of the shade that God has provided as he sits and waits and watches for what he hopes will be God's wrath to destroy Nineveh. Jonah happily welcomes God's mercy for himself when he is the recipient, but he can't stand it when God shows it to others, particularly them. And then in verse 7, we see God's continued sovereignty still at work. The object lesson isn't done yet. Notice verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Now he appoints a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So is, is God just playing games with Jonah here? No. This worm 
is now meant to give Jonah just a small taste of divine justice. What he wants Nineveh to experience by destroying the plant. Verse 8, look there. God isn't finished yet. When the sun rose, God now appoints a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This only adds notice to Jonah's misery. No protection from the sun. Think summer in Phoenix, right? And he is faint. In fact, he is so miserable. Notice verse 8 that he asks again for God to take his life. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So twice now he's asked God to take his life. He wants to be delivered from his own misery. Sinclair Ferguson comments here, were we Jonah's pastor, we would take him by the shoulders and say to him, Jonah, do you see that God is trying to say something to you? And the Lord now has him right where he wants him. And the stage is now set for God to question him yet again. God speaks yet again. Look there, verse 9. God repeats the question that he had previously asked, similar to the question in verse 4. But this time, this time he asks about Jonah's anger over the withered plant. Look there, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? In other words, is such anger over a stupid plant, the right response? God didn't say stupid. I said that. But this time, look at verse 9. Jonah does answer. And this answer is, well, pathetic. Yes. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Of course I should be angry. This plant meant so much to me that that was wrong of you, God. It should live. It should not die. And then finally, verse 10, the object lesson is now complete. And God asked Jonah a final question. Verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor? Nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night? Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah didn't create this plant. He didn't labor to grow this plant. This plant grew up in one night and it was gone the next. No, this is just an expression of his petty selfishness. 
He is more concerned about this silly plant that he didn't create, but his heart is hard toward an entire city of people. He's concerned about a plant perishing, but he's indifferent to people perishing. And God's question here in verses 10 and 11, it comes here in the form of a challenge. This is a challenge toward Jonah. If Jonah could care so deeply about a silly plant, a one-day-old weed that he didn't create, then should not God care all the more for Ninevites that he did create? My image bearers, my creation, human beings, Jonah, there are more than 120,000 people there that I created. Verse 11, scholars disagree here over the identity of these 120,000 people because that phrase there, notice, who don't know their right hand from their left. Some suggest this could be a reference just to the children who don't have the moral capacity to know their right hand from their left, which would mean then that the total population of Nineveh, if you project that out, could be close to half a million people. But this could simply be a reference here just to total population, which would still be a very large city at this time. And so then God is saying, Jonah, here are 120,000 persons, image bearers of mine, who lack moral and ethical discernment. They don't have the advantages that you have. They don't have the advantages of Israel. They don't have my word. They don't have my law. Israel knows the one true and living God. They know my will, but they don't know. They don't know the truth. And should not I pity them? Friend, God looks upon Nineveh with pity, with saving mercy upon these wicked Ninevites. And God also looks with pity on the nations of the world, billions and billions of his image bearers who don't know their right hand from their left. That does not excuse them. That does not mean they're not guilty, but they don't know the truth. And I pity them. In fact, surprisingly, we see God's compassionate heart even for the animals. Look at verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, this great city in which there's more than 120,000 persons and also much cattle? What's that about? That's strange. In other words, Jonah... If you won't look with pity and compassion on these Ninevites, at least, at least look with compassion on these animals who would be destroyed. Friends, behold, 
the hard-hearted prophet. But behold, the mercy of God. And then, verse 12. Oh, wait, that's it. Story ends. How's that for a cliffhanger? Whatever happened to Jonah? We don't know. My best guess is because of the details given in this book, Jonah is the author of this book. And because he doesn't smooth over the rough edges of Jonah's character, I, I think maybe perhaps this story is proof of his repentance. We don't know. But again, it doesn't matter. He isn't the main character of this story. And this final question here is meant to be a question for us. Whose reflection do you see? So what are we to learn from this? First of all, the author of Jonah, I think, knows that something of Jonah lurks in us. In our hearts, that we are a lot more like Jonah that we realize or even that we'll say out loud. And this book isn't really a call to action. There are some actionable things in it, but it's not really a call to action. Instead, this book, I think, is a call to reflection. It's a call to introspection. It's meant to show us God's character so that it might cause us to reflect and ask, okay, am I more like God or am I more like Jonah? So let me ask us in closing, in what ways are we like Jonah? We'll just consider some closing questions. Number one, do we get frustrated and angry with God for not executing his judgment on those whom we think deserve it? Maybe it's a certain people group. Maybe it's a certain segment of society or culture. Those who have maybe perhaps wronged us, sinned against us, and we're tempted to just ask God, would you just destroy them? To grow impatient, angry when God continues to show them patience and mercy. Who's your Nineveh? It's probably whoever you're thinking of right now. Second question, in what ways do we take God's mercy for granted? Jonah took God's mercy toward him for granted. Do we, in what ways do we do the same? We, 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 we begrudge God's blessings. We, we presume upon his grace, his gifts. His mercy toward us, thinking that God owes us grace. Listen, God owes no one grace. No one. You remember in, in, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus, he tells this story of a master who goes out into his vineyard to hire laborers. And they agree to work for one denarius a day, a day's wage. And he sends them out to work. And then later, about the third hour, he goes and he hires more laborers who work, if you remember, a less amount of time than the first. 
And then the master goes out and he does this three more times as it gets later and later in the day. He goes at the sixth hour and the ninth hour and the eleventh hour. And then at the end of the day, he calls in all of the workers to pay them and the master pays them all the same amount. No matter how much time they worked during the day. Even though some had worked longer. And those first hired thought they deserved more And here's what the master who represents God says. Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I have chosen with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my grace? Should I not pity them too? Friends, we can become so accustomed to grace that it becomes less amazing. And we forget that we too were undeserving and God pitied us. And yet we have a much more compelling reason than Jonah even to be grateful because we have seen the most compelling example of God's compassion and mercy displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. One greater than Jonah is here. Don't begrudge his grace. Be amazed. Finally. Last question. Does our belief in God's sovereignty diminish our pity and urgency for the lost? Does our belief in God's sovereignty diminish our pity and urgency for the lost? Or another way to say it would be, does our understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation, which we're all about, we're big on that, does it undercut or numb our compassion and pittiness and brokenness over the lost world and lead us to be lazy in evangelism. You know, we we as a church, we're firm on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Election, predestination, doctrines of grace, whatever you want to call it. But Let me tell you that oftentimes the temptation in churches that are convictionally reformed, that are convictionally Calvinistic, can be a lack of urgency for the lost and even an indifference. And yet, in Jonah, we see clearly God is sovereign, haven't we? He's sovereign over storms. He's sovereign over fish and plants and worms and winds. He's sovereign over Jonah. He's sovereign over the Ninevites. He's absolutely sovereign. And yet, it is absolutely essential that Jonah go, and it's absolutely essential that they hear, and they repent, and they believe, so they can be saved. And my fear as a church is that our high view of God's sovereignty and salvation could lead us to be just like Jonah. That we don't pity the lost world around us. God says... Should I not pity them? Should I not pity Mount Vernon? Should I not pity Chicago? Should I not pity Central Asia? Should I not pity Russia? Should I not pity North Korea? 
Should I not pity them? And I close with this quote from the great London Baptist Calvinist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he said, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unaware or unprayed for. May it be true. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.